Hey there, Omaha. Welcome into another episode of Restaurant Hoppin'. I'm your host, Dan Hoppin', and today my guest is John Davis. He has worked at many of Omaha's most well-known restaurants, seen by many, I'm sure you wouldn't characterize yourself as this, but seen by many in the scene as a rising star. He is the chef de cuisine at Le Bouillon currently. John, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. <laughs> so I, I want to start off by just making what I think is an important clarification, because I think there's a little bit of confusion sometimes with just the term chef. So when we're talking about chef de cuisine, like a lot of people kind of look at Le Bouillon and they recognize that as Chef Paul Kulik's restaurant. And for good reason. He's the owner. He's the executive chef. So can you kind of lay out your your job title as chef de cuisine? What does that mean for people who don't work in kitchens all the time? How would you explain it to them? Man, I mean, where do you... Where do you start? Uh, for me personally, like taking on Chef de Cuisine at Le Bouillon is kind of orchestrating. You're kind of having to put faith in your staff in being able to do the things that you want them to do and to be a guiding hand, you know, and kind of just steer the ship while the captain's kind of out, you know. So traditionally it goes executive chef, chef de cuisine, sous chef. So I originally, when I came back to Le Bouillon, I was the sous chef there for about – Gosh, it's been like six months, something like that. And then uh, my uh, old chefs, uh, Samuel Sacconi, uh took his uh, you know month notice in, and he's actually uh, on his way to California right now. I think as we speak. I think. Oh wow! Yeah, uh, going out there to work at our uh, uh, former buddy's farm. Uh, but really, it's just kind of about orchestrating and uh, really just trying to bring the ideas and the push and the conceptions of all these dishes to fruition, you know, whether that be contacting people, managing people, being on my cell phone all the time, <laughs> you know. So pretty much that's that's about it. But also just trying to put good food up and, you know, be thoughtful in the way that we're doing things and, you know, sourcing locally, which is best, and just trying to make people happy and nourish them through food. I think that's the goal. Maybe that's really the chef de cuisine is just to nourish or maybe just – general statement for chefs in general just uh-huh. to nourish others and make people happy when you say be thoughtful about the way we're doing things what do you mean by that i guess like uh just having a a great intention of what you want that guest to be able to like enjoy in that dish whether and it kind of makes you think of like tastings like whether you want to have that kind of a mousse bouche to kind of start them off and have them can be this kind of like open to the book of what you're trying to show them uh i know one really great dinner we did uh, back when I was previously at Mertz was this, uh, I believe, women's luncheon at dinner. And they all kind of blend in together. But it was for a uh, purveyor uh, from Squeaky Greens, Squeaky Greens Organics out in uh, Plattsmouth from Brian Queeler. I'm not butchering your last name, Brian. Um, but that was, I uh, actually was a farmhand at one time there. So it was, gosh, um Going to sleep by 9 on a Monday, which can make you feel like a little kid at times, but then waking up at 3 on Tuesday to get there by 4 and then help them harvest. You know, I started off seeding and uh, basically harvesting, so washing turnips in like a 50-degree, you know, a little clean house, you know, with a three-sink, so you're sitting there just spraying. and By the time you notice, you're completely soaked, and it's like 4.30 in the morning. (laughs) Um, So that was kind of really cool in the way of – being able to have this dinner to reflect at all the different points of that uh, that farm. And I think that was one of the most beautiful dinners I ever had because you could tell, like, in the way that 
we have intent in a dish, you can see like that type of purveyor also has that same intent of what the type of food they want to grow. And they may not n- always know what the final product's going to be, but it's really cool to see that all the way from the beginning to fruition because I would go right to work afterwards. So it's like I'm picking rhubarb at like 5.30, 5 o'clock in the morning and seeing it be used on a rice pudding dish, like stewed rhubarb on a rice pudding dish. So it was really cool to see it, like to harvest it, to bring it to the restaurant, to seeing it to be prepped, to seeing it be executed. Like it's a really beautiful cycle to have uh, seen, and I was very lucky and fortunate for that. I know know that this isn't possible because if we had the full story behind every dish, meals would take like (laughs) seven (laughs) hours at restaurants. But like, I I wish that there was some way if you went and did a tasting menu to like, and I guess it wouldn't even have to be a tasting menu. It could just be any dish, but just like get the full story, not like the chef de cuisine or the the sous chef, you know, whatever role you were in at that point. He got up at three o'clock this morning so he could go you know, get this rhubarb from the specific farm and, and here's the history behind the farm. Like, I think we would appreciate our meals and what we're served so much more if we understood the care and the intentionality and, like you said, the thought that went into, like, every component. I, oh, yeah. I think that we would just appreciate... We'd have so much better appreciation for, for what we're eating and for the people that are serving it to us. Definitely. Like, it makes me think of many of uh, climbing under a trellis to harvest uh, tomatoes because I didn't want to walk all the way around so I would just went underneath which was a mistake because <laughs> I remember getting back home and my wife wasn't there and go to sit there I'm like oh my god I got three ticks on me you know so I'm freaking out trying to like slap my back and try to get them off she eventually showed up and helped me out but <laughs> it was a hard 20 minutes of panic right there because <laughs> I can't reach it <laughs> uh-huh. but uh you know I think it's really cool to be able to be like in that environment to uh you know just have people know what that attention is and people work so hard just to get it to that point, you know? So I think it's, it's crazy to see the steps, you mm-hmm. know, especially with local purveyors, which mm-hmm. obviously have the best products. <laughs> no question. <laughs> uh, but I want to get more into your background and your story here, mm-hmm. but before we do, I think we should give a quick shout out to, to Lebu Yan where you're working. And this is clearly, you know, a special restaurant for you. This is the second time that you've worked there. You worked there previously, then came back to be the sous chef and were promoted to chef de cuisine. What to you makes Le Bouillon a special restaurant? What I think what it makes it so special to me is primarily just all the hard work that I see people like, you know, go in there and do. Like this past weekend, we did 212 on Saturday night. And uh, it feels like forever ago. But on Saturday and just to see like the whole team come together uh, and really push that, that was a beautiful thing to see. And it is... A push, it always is. You know, I was talking to Paul about it. I bumped into him at Archetype this morning. He goes, it was a barn burner. And, uh, you know, but it's really cool to just see everybody work hard and push for that. You know, especially with people being vaccinated, graduations. Uh, it's starting to definitely get busier. And I think it's just only going to ramp up from here. But it's just so amazing to see what, what restaurants can endure and go through. And, you know, always... the you know, last year it seems like we were at a pretty dark spot, but there's always that light at the end of the tunnel. And, uh, you know, always got to keep that, that positive attitude because if you don't have that, it's just it's not worth it, <laughs> you know. What is the feeling like at the end of a barn burner like you like you had on <sighs> Saturday? Man, um, exhaustion, uh, both mentally and physically. I'm checking my phone to reply to the five missed text messages from my wife. Uh 
thinking about while doing that, trying to grab water, thinking of counts, thinking about what t- actually time it is, realizing it's like 10.05, 10.30, uh, but also like a, a sense of joy, but knowing that you really gave it your all, you know, and as being a chef, there's always going to be that side of perfection to where you, I could have done this bit, this better. I could have economized my movements better in this way. You know, maybe if I adjusted this, this would have been a little bit easier on that pickup to shave me, what, two minutes? Mm-hmm. But it seems like a long time when you're in that type of environment. Um, so a, a huge mix. But, you know, on a Saturday when you know you have the next day off, can, you know, catch a, a full night's sleep and sleep in a little bit in the morning, that's a, it's a, it's a great feeling. I, I don't know how to describe it. Mm-hmm. Um, it's almost like an adrenaline rush because you're so amped afterwards because things are just coming and going and you're flying, you're talking, you're putting up food, you're moving, you're grooving. And next thing you know, six hours pass and you're just like still on it. When I got to the, the Sydney, cause my wife worked there in the past, this past Saturday, uh, I just came in and, uh, we always had to say coming in hot. So it just came in hot and like, well, this happened, that happened. And, oh man, I'm really happy we sandbagged these items and this happened, you know? And she said, there's like, Hey John, you're off of work. You can take a breath, <laughs> you know? So it's, it's exhilarating. It's really addictive. Yeah, truly. Um, I know, you know, you kind of mentioned how busy it was this weekend and how things were starting to feel kind of normal as we kind of see, hopefully continue to see the effects of the pandemic recede and there are more vaccinations and everything. Do you kind of sense a different vibe in the kitchen? Like, can you feel that things feel more like they did maybe in 2019 than they did in 2020? Is just like the general mood improved oh, oh definitely i mean i think of uh those because i used to open up every day for brunch on saturdays so you know you get those uh you know a couple tables here a couple tables there it wasn't anything that was ever too unmanageable uh and then now it's like you're you're walking you're like you know i'm dry i just live over in little italy so driving down and seeing all the people walking through farmers markets and just seeing this massive amount of people when uh thinking about my wife and i were walking down there all the time and it was a ghost town especially on Saturdays, especially when everything was closed. But uh, it's, yeah, there's like this new exhilaration in the air. I think people are really, you know, ramping up to wanting to, you know, get back to work, be out. It's just, yeah, it's completely different, utterly. But it's like it's like a breath of fresh air. Mm-hmm. How did you originally get interested in cooking? Oh, man. Okay. Um, we'll get back. I, I was talking to a lot of stages about this, uh, interns, uh, this past couple of weeks of why they decided to cook. And I guess my reason why I cook. Um, so my parents got divorced when Josh and I, my twin brother, were about nine years old. And my mom was a single mom. So, you know, you're growing up, you're just eating SpaghettiOs, Chef Boyardee, uh, top ramen, especially just in the cup, you know, because it was easy to give that to a kid and say, use the microwave. And uh, one day, I don't know why, but we just didn't have that for some reason. And uh, my twin was really, really upset. And I was like, well, I'm just going to make pancakes because there's a little little joy of cooking book. And I looked at pancakes. I didn't do a good job at all. It was horrible. <laughs> um, and I'm pretty sure I burnt most of them. But, you know, and drowning it in enough syrup will kind of you know, cover that oh, yeah. bitterness up. Uh, but that feeling of cooking for somebody else in that nourishing aspect that I knew that I should not only, like, you know, gave my brother food to eat, but it made him feel better. I think that's kind of like that concept of, like, leaving something better than how you left it. I hope when people, like, arrive at the restaurant, they're always 
leaving happier than when they first got there, you know? I think, so I think it's greatly that sense of uh, nourishing others, you know, definitely. So that's when you first recognize that I want to that, that, yeah, that that feeling like filled you up. When did you start to pursue that professionally? Or when did you start to think this is something I could do as a job or maybe even as a career? Well, in uh, Westside High School, they make you do, uh, what was it? Uh, home ec? Uh, no, well, I, we, I did do home ec okay. in middle school and high school. Uh, but it was like a career project. And I had okay. this huge fork in the road. It was either I go to be in the culinary field or I go to IT. I really wanted to go in the culinary field. My father was just like, oh, get in IT, get in IT. And this is like 2009, 2010, just really pushing for that. And obviously I feel like when parents try to push for one thing, the kid always goes the opposite <laughs> way. Um, so that's when I kind of decided I had did this whole career project on the pros and cons of both information technology field versus the culinary field. And to me, yeah, the money is not really that great in the culinary field, but I think the sense of nourishing others is priceless, you know, and, uh, that's where I kind of went. So I uh, applied well, my first job, Casio, is I applied for a busboy in like t- September of 2011 and then started from there and just worked my way up. What do you remember about that first job? Uh, uh, craziness. I mean, it's a huge, it's, it's actually a huge, huge place. They have a basement that can accommodate like 200 people. Uh, really like gnarly line cooks that have been there for like 20, 30 years. Uh, no responsibilities really when I was that young. Um, these to uh, Larry Cascio, uh, Alfonso Cascio's Alfie's uh, dad would always when I, w- I would work in the mornings. And your uh, duties as a busser is to obviously bust tables, uh, pull bus tubs back to dish, and then reset tables and give out waters. We used to have competitions to see how many waters you could hold in one hand. So the whole goal was like try to manage like six waters to go up to a six top. But I remember having the sense of pride where I would sprint. When somebody got up, I would sprint towards the table, reset it as fast as I could, and kind of oddly time myself. And Larry Casho used to say, go, Johnny, go. You know, that uh, Chuck Berry song. Yeah. You know, he would always say that. So there goes Johnny. Look at him running. You see this guy? <laughs> you know, so that was kind of uh, one of my first memories there, and kind of being uh, proud that I was resetting tables so fast. And, you know, a lot of crazy memories, definitely. <laughs> I think – just that sense right there of you taking pride in something as simple as resetting a table plays really well into uh, this quote that I got. I, I reached out to to somebody else who's in the industry who who recommended that you come on the podcast, actually, and I was like, tell me, like, what, what makes this dude special? And he said, it all starts with humility. John doesn't need the limelight to be great. Showing up with the highest level of execution day in and day out gets you into the big leagues. He's the Tony Gwynn type of guy who just executes whatever <laughs> given the situation. How did you develop that approach? Is that just like how you are or is that something you learned along your path? Where did that come from? The the, the humility aspect or the execution or all, all of it? it. Um, I think it's if you're going to do something, put, put your all into it. Obviously, with this type of industry can be... Uh, it's easier to be angry and easier to snap and be that type of person. And I found it uh, at times harder, but also easier to uh, be, I don't want to say conduit, that's not a good word, but if something bad happens, you don't put that on somebody else, you know? And I guess just being uh, hardworking, I guess my parents always instilled that into me and, uh, you know, do it, either do it or don't do it at all. Go big or go home. Um, you know, I find that 
the satisfaction of working a long day is absolutely gratifying, you know. Um, <laughs> who said that quote? <laughs> I'm curious who talked about it so highly about Nick, me. Nick Bartholomew. Nick Bartholomew? Uh-huh. Oh, nice. That was really nice of him. Uh, I appreciate that. Um, but, yeah, no, I uh, it's just all about just trying to have fun and be positive and bring others up and, most importantly, just cook food. I mean, you can get very grandioso with it of how are you doing this and how are you doing that. But I know, like, when we're busy, uh, I'll, you know, tell the staff, that, hey, we're just cooking breakfast. Like, we're just cooking lunch. We're just cooking dinner. At the end of the day, we're all a bunch of people that are ripping off our chef's coats to get into our white T-shirts and scrub down a bunch of stuff and sweep and mop. I think, to me, that is the great equalizer at the end of the day. And uh, to quote an old coworker, can I cuss on this thing? <laughs> Yeah. Okay, cool. Go for it. Have some fun. Um, she <laughs> uh, had stated to me, Cassie Jacobs, I worked with at Kitchen Table. It was like the most lovely backhanded compliment I've ever gotten. He goes, John, you're a shit-eating sponge. And at first, I'm like, what does that mean, you know? <laughs> you got to unpack that. <laughs> yeah, I'm like, what's up with that? And she was just like, no. I mean, she's like, nothing affects you. You could deal with like the crappiest day and deal with this and deal with that, but it's not going to like roll down the other person, which is a lot easier said than done because I'm not perfect. And I have definitely taken work home with me, but I think it's all about being the person that takes that negativity, stops it, and then spits out positivity because I think that's that's what people need. You know? mm-hmm. Let's all bring each other up. Mm-hmm. I think that really plays into the the humility um, aspect of, of, of that quote. And I think, you know, you see – a lot of people these days try and get into cooking or try and get into food off of the illusion of fame because of the rise of the food network, because of the rise of the celebrity chef. Even, you know, local celebrity chefs can get, you know, recognized to some extent now. But the more and more people actually that are working in the industry that I talk to, the more that I like, you know, bring up this thought to them, they're just like, that's the worst reason to get into cooking. Like if you do that, you're going to wash out almost immediately. Just why do you think that is like, what is it about having that humility that is just such a perfect fit for being successful in the kitchen? I think it, when the humility kind of comes down to it, it's, uh, it's checking your own ego. You know, it's knowing that ego is the enemy that I'm don't know everything. And when I have uh, people first start working for me, you know, I was talking to uh, Michaela, one of our uh, newest staff that just worked on this barn burner of a weekend, so nice trial by fire, uh, that I don't know everything. But I'm going to try my hardest to find out and find the answer and relay that information efficiently and correctly. And, you know, we always have these, you know, giants, you know, little uh, infinite information in our pocket. So that's always a great tool. It's always nice to help others learn, but then learn from them. So there's kind of this like symbiotic relationship. Um, but I feel like people that try to get in it to be famous, it's like that, that's silly. Like you can't do that, man. Like that's what, well, why are you doing it for the fame? Like go be a TikTok, you know, like <laughs> yeah. influencer, social media influencer, if that's how you're trying to do it. But that's just not a good enough reason for me, you know, that, to be famous. I would much rather let the food do the talking than me ever have to, like, go out. I would love to, like, go out, say hi for a little bit, ask if they enjoy the food, but just let the food do the talking. That's really, I feel like, what it comes down to at the end of the day, you know. It's all about, you know, but I think also with those people that are, I don't know, 
quote unquote famous in the culinary world, uh, you know, it takes a team. It's not about me. It's, uh, it's everybody at Le Bouillon, you know, uh, I am nothing without them. And without those people that are so instrumental to prepping, executing our services, you know, I just feel like it, it takes a village. I think it's essentially what I'm trying to drive towards. It takes a village. Mm-hmm. No, no one person can do it by themselves. Mm-hmm. And I think at this particular time, we're seeing that, you know, more than ever is there's been, you know, a shortage of employees available, a shortage of line cooks, things like that. It, it makes it that much harder to be able to, to execute. And it really does kind of drive that point home of it. It's not just one person. It's not just, you know, the chef de cuisine, executive chef, sous chef, but it's everybody. Mm-hmm. Everybody contributes into making service awesome, including that bus boy who is sprinting with six <laughs> glasses of water or he's sprinting to reset the table. Yeah. That's the kind of stuff that you absolutely need in the kitchen. Agreed. A linchpin of sorts. Yes. Um, one of the most interesting things that I find about chef careers are the varied paths that they take to reach where they currently are and just kind of the things that they learn that kind of develop them as both a, uh, an employee and a person along the way. So I kind of just wanted to to kind of run through your path and look at the different restaurants you worked at and you just kind of tell me uh, what's like some takeaways or some valuable learnings that you had from each spot. Does that sound okay? Yeah, no, totally. Um, I think... Cashios taught me uh, a lot about efficiency and kind of consolidating those movements in sort of a way because I was a busboy to a tray carrier to a dishwasher to a pizza maker to like help me out the line like making like I think they trust me with hash browns at that point that was about it um, but really how to bring you know bring a, a service but not only that to also ask for help I'll never forget the first time I heard. Uh, I got slammed on pizza station and <laughs> I remember Alfie walking up and going, Oh, Hey everybody, Johnny's drowning. And I'm like, what does that mean? You know? And he's just like, you're over your head kid. And like comes out and helps me out. So I think that place also taught me to ask for help. Uh, I can admit that I am still learning to do that now. And it's I, hard. It is. Yeah. It is hard to ask for help. And maybe that's kind of like where ego comes in is, thinking that you can do it all yourself. And it's like, yeah, you can do it all yourself, man, but at what cost? You know, how much harder is going to be to ask that person that's already standing there waiting for you to give them a task, be like, hey, can you peel these beets and then you portion them out? That would be great. Or, hey, do you think you can put this order in for this day? I was thinking about this fish, you know, and delegating efficiently. Um, but I'm getting farther too far ahead. Uh, so Cash has basically taught, taught me about speed, um, I worked at a couple different places like the Corner Crepery and Baxter's. Those were all pretty, uh, I don't know, fast times. I was only there for like, I want to say six months. I think actually the Crepery was longer than that. But, uh, you know, I met a lot of cool people through that. Actually got in culinary school around the Crepery times. Baxter's was interesting. That was like back when, what, what is minimum wage now? Like, is it seven something still? Or I don't even know. It's like, I was getting paid like seven twenty five <laughs> to work from four o'clock in the afternoon till four o'clock in the morning. And that was really, really fun. Uh, I mean, being this young blood that's showing up to a pizza shop wearing a chef coat, you know, like <laughs> trying to be that guy that's yeah. serious. And that kind of, that type of environment taught me to not to take myself so seriously and take a breath. Um, then I went over to kitchen table 
And that was an amazing experience. I met so many people, but the beauty of that place was they literally sourced everything locally. And that's where I actually first met Ryan. Uh, we rolled collard or dolmas with uh, collard greens and did that type of way and had this dinner for him, which that was a beautiful dinner as well. Uh, but that place really taught me to bring it. Uh, you know, those were some long days, long shifts, and that taught me the most because he would just get slammed at lunch, you know. And that, that place really taught me to move. And then when the first time I came back to Labu on, that also taught me a lot. I mean, working under Paul is such a great thing. He's such a wealth of information, you know, so you can literally ask him about something. He's got an answer for this, this, and that, and gets really in-depth with it. Um, also, how to manage my time a bit easier and, and you know, try and economize my movements. Still things I'm always working to on this day. Uh, and then from there got into VMERTs and that was a lot about, you know, execution as far as, you know, actually having courses with things and setting yourself up for the success, like having very detailed lists and very analytical. Uh, and then, you know, to, I think one thing VMERTs always taught me was, uh, fast is smooth and smooth is fast. So you could be the fast person in the kitchen and still be super jumpy dropping salt on the table, not wiping yourself down. As long as you're smooth and you do economize those movements, then you're fast at that point. You're always thinking about the one, two steps ahead as you're subconsciously kind of, you know, flipping that egg and then you're thinking about the bacon that's in the oven. And as you're pulling the oven or bacon out of the oven, you're thinking about like what, you know, protein you got resting up over there. I think protein cookery was a really important thing I learned from there too. Um, and then I actually went to Culprit. Uh, I went there to go work with my twin brother in Manage Midtown. Uh, that was an amazing experience. I got to meet a lot of cool people. Uh, and that place was a grindhouse. I mean, that place uh, was really instrumental to me, kind of learning how to delegate, really take on more of a managerial kind of role because when you're always a line cook, you don't really think about this, this, and that. And sometimes I think about when I was just a line cook and how I never texted anybody. Right, like my phone was never on blast all the time, and then uh, from there, you know, worked, came back to Labuyon with a different kind of point of view on how that place should work. I guess without the same naivety that I kind of went into it the first time, uh, so that made that kind of environment getting back into it when you've kind of already had a semi test run is cool, and you know, put out a lot, a lot of good food, uh, and have and will, um, and it's going to be, it's just an amazing time, you know. I want to dig into that, what you talked about at Culprit there, where you kind of started to move beyond the mindset of being a line cook. So where obviously food is still the focus, but you're starting to learn some of the managerial stuff, how to, uh, how to, I don't know if command is quite the, quite the word I'm looking for, but command a team, work with a team. Mm -hmm. um, I'm assuming there were probably like, you know, sourcing, ordering, the things that a cook doesn't have to deal with, but it sounds like that's that was kind of your first introduction. What what was that like for you to kind of move a little bit beyond just food and get into kind of the background that the diner doesn't see? Um, you know, there's definitely a lot of little headaches you don't think of, whether a Cisco order doesn't have something on that truck. Uh, if a purveyor told you one thing and then drops off the product, check, double check the invoice and it's a different price than what they quoted. Um, also the beauty of like meeting local purveyors and, you know, asking if you can go out to their spot out in, you know, Papillion or the country and you know, go check out what they're doing. Like that was a really beautiful thing. Um, and I guess it's just, uh, setting people up 
that so that there's no other choice but to succeed that you kind of have it already set for them and it's like all right i did a b all you need to do is c and execute and there you have to go and i think it's kind of trying to set others up but also communicating it's like over communicating it's making sure that you've told a b and c i mean as much as it it kind of makes it feel as when you're working a busy service as a line cook and you know you have, you went into the night with like a 12 par on a Saturday, which you know you're going to run out. That's anxietyville. Um, and you get down to that five count. And it's like, all right, five, four, three, two, one. And then you make sure you have to tell every single server, like, hey, one count on this, two count on that. Hey, do we still have that? No, because I just sold it on table 14. You know, and it's kind of like that same type of communication is like doing that with everybody on your team. And over communicating that, even to the point where I some semi or sometimes feel semi annoying, you know. But it's like you have to just do that because, you know, sure beats the alternative and not communicating. Well, what's an example of a time where you had to learn that communicating lesson? That over communicating is preferable to the alternative. Uh man, I would say like over communicating. Um, it makes me think of when I first, so when I first left Mertz and went to Colprit, my first weekend, I, uh, we had a Mother's Day brunch. And obviously Mother's Day brunches are heaters. Insane, yeah. Absolutely insane. Um, and I wanted to put like four items on the menu with all these intricate touches and still kind of cr- like carrying that mentality into a kind of a more casual space. And I, uh, go foraging a lot and I found these uh turkey tail mushrooms or uh they're called pheasant backs um and I was such an idiot I didn't really know what I was doing I ended up getting too large of a one so it's like asparagus when it gets down to the bottom of the stalk if you get a one of those pheasant back mushrooms that's too large it's inedible you can literally braise it and slow cook it for 14 maybe 24 hours and it still has that woody bite and uh I'll never forget messing that up and then having to communicate with Luke. And I was like, yeah, take the pheasant back off. We're going to put, I think, manchego cheese. But then also over-communicating with my staff of the three other specials that we had to do and how I wanted it picked up and how it, like, so literally doing that prep till one, realizing that idea is futile, coming back in the morning and then talk, trying to make it work, not making it work, having to pivot and adjust, and then talk to my cook at the time and tell him he's like, all right, I want you to do this, this and that this way. And then I think at the end we sold a bunch of French toast, but I still had a lot of the other items. <laughs> and I, so that even that sense was like, I was doing too much, you know? Uh-huh. What was the biggest difference from your last shift during your first run at Lebouillon to your first shift during the second run? Can you repeat the question? I apologize. <laughs> what? Okay. I should find a better way to phrase this. When you left Lebuyan the first time mm-hmm. to when you started working at Lebuyan the second time, what? where did you grow the most, do you think? What What was the biggest differentiator between those two people? I felt like by the time I came back, I had a more general sense of, I mean, Kitchen table always taught about sense of urgency. And there's always two people. That's a, the difference between people that fail and people that succeed is a sense of urgency. So in that way, when I was working those heater services from saute to proteins uh, at Mertz, that really gave me a full kind of spectrum of what I needed to do in order to accomplish these goals. Uh, and 
And it kind of came back into it because even when I went over to Culprit, it kind of took on more of that responsibility. I kind of had an idea. I was like, oh, I'm taking on these more of these kind of managerial positions uh, and roles and assignments for when I came back as sous chef. It's like, all right, so I'm kind of, now I get to do both. So I get to kind of have that, you know, bring that ass mentality from Vmerts. Um and having that kind of more managerial skills from corporate that led me to success with that. Uh, but I think it's kind of just, just, just working hard. I don't know how else to describe it. It's like I was telling Paul, it's like there's two uh, ways to look at something. It's like uh, either you're going to succeed and, or you don't, and we only have one option, and that's to succeed. You know. And I was like, I'll do anything, anything to make sure that we make it through the end of that service, that we push out the best food that we can, uh, and, you know, executing at that type of level and maintaining that quality. Um, yeah, I hope that wasn't much, too much of a ramble question. That was exactly what I was looking for. <laughs> that was perfect. Um, this is kind of open-ended, but I'm just curious mm-hmm. because I, I had Chef Paul in here for a podcast interview probably over a year ago now. Mm-hmm. But it just, the level of intelligence that that man has, and not just talking about food, but talking about everything. Like I prepped harder for that interview than like any <laughs> other because I was like, this guy is so smart. I have to at least like I have to be somewhat on his level, so I don't sound like a total idiot. He's just such a such a fascinating person. What is it like to work with him? It's a lot of fun, you know. It's it's great working with Paul. Uh, I mean, especially kind of like so the first time I ever met Paul. Uh, at Metro, there used to be a local local Five Chefs uh, event where they would uh, have a couple different restaurants, and I think uh, just basically praise purveyors. I think Dean from Plum Creek got an award that year. And uh, these couple uh, that I knew uh, took me to it because I was going to Metro at the time, and I ended up sitting at a table with his wife and uh, his in-laws, Quinn's parents, and talked about, oh, man, I really want to. You know, Stosh at the boiler room. I uh, had a buddy, Kane, that I had, uh, knew that worked there and was in Metro at that time. And uh, I'll never forget her coming up and pulling me up to Paul and going, Hey, Paul, this is John. He wants a stage at the boiler room. Can you help him out? And he's just, Uh huh, uh huh, yep, uh huh, uh huh. And just kind of getting to really learn from him and, you know, learn from each other over these last couple of years has been. A lot of fun. We used to have this game uh, between when I left and when I came back. Uh, that every time I saw him, either across the street or coming out of Archetype or somewhere, I would just put my like, point a finger at him and just yell Kulik. And he'd look <laughs> at me and go, Twin. Um, so kind of having that camaraderie. Um, but yeah, I mean, he's just a really uh, very insightful dude. He knows a lot. You should really get him on war history sometimes. He knows a lot about war history. War history. Yeah, I know. It's not even food related. Like we got super in uh, to talking about Russians during the, uh, I believe, liberation of France or was it liberate? No, liberation of Poland uh, when the Russians got there and kind of what they went through and kind of his father's kind of experiences. Uh, his father Thad and I thought that was just so interesting to because I love history. It's like one of my favorite subjects. So just getting to sit there and listen to him talk about uh, conflicts from the Middle East to kind of more so like post-World War II history is very, very interesting as we're, of course, as we're making prepping items. <laughs> so it's like we're, we're prepping food, but we're talking about world history. So it's not all, always about food, but um, it's a really, he's a really insightful dude, you know. Uh-huh. Shout out, Pauly K. Pauly K. Uh, so we, we talked a lot about your history and, and kind of the path that you took um, 
it, and what you learned from all the different restaurants, I, I just, I find it interesting kind of comparing ha- how that maturation process versus someone who kind of finds their place in one restaurant and then sticks there for 10, 15, you know, you don't even know how many years, but they, they just kind of find their role and they stay there versus, and, and they become great at that thing versus other other cooks and chefs kind of take a more varied approach. They have more experiences, maybe get to try different types of cuisine. Was that an intentional strategy on your part to try a bunch of different things, or did that just kind of come together as your career advanced? I would say both. I mean, the goal is always I went to Metro for a very short time, so I never finished culinary school. Um, But I did learn a lot from the time that I was there. And it kind of came down to what a lot of people, I'm sure, are dealing with nowadays is do I pay to go to school and to mimic that environment, or do I go fully into it? Because, you know, you can mess up an omelet eight times at in culinary school, and, like, yeah, the teacher's going to be upset, but, you know, they're anticipating that loss of product. Whereas when you're, like, at a restaurant and you're coming up on a 12-top and you don't have your, your omelet ready and you're having to refire it and you're working it while half the table's walking, that is anxiety-filled. And I think those uh, moments are a lot more transformative so how can you not let that happen again? How could I be better? I think that's always something that's kind of been in my mind, but also that you learn from so many people as you go down the road, um, you know, and it was always an intentional process and the fact that I've always wanted to keep growing and moving and learning. Uh, sometimes I, I talk with my wife about this. When it gets too easy or comfortable, that's a warning sign. Yep. Uh, so you always got to keep pushing for that uncomfortability because if it wasn't uncomfortable, it, I mean, where's the growth in that, you know, if just showing up and clocking in and doing what you always do and then clocking out, you know, as long as maybe if you have something else fulfilling, like outside of work, that's cool, you know. Uh, but to me, it's you got to always keep pushing. How can you be better? And that kind of is what the, the always striving perfectionist kind of side is I'm never really satisfied with what I do. So it's like, how could I be better? How could I have done this better? How could the service have been better? What could I have prepared better? And it's always about just striving for that 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 excellence that's always always right there, you know. But just always pushing and growing. Mm-hmm. Going back to the beginning of that answer, do you think there's something that culinary schools could do to better mimic the restaurant environment so there is a little bit more of kind of that that heightened sense that you were talking about, a little bit more sense of accountability? I mean, I'm sure that they do. I mean, especially in like fine dining, and they do have you know the sage bistro and they can kind mm-hmm. of m- mimic that uh that environment um and you know the chefs there are very serious as well i remember being there and uh not you know being slightly intimidated you know because obviously i'm a first year culinary student um what could they do better i don't know i think metro does a great job if i'm not tap dancing around this answer <laughs> no it's all good um you know i just think that it one is that you're paying to do it. The other one is that you have your money riding, like the money that you're earning mm. is based upon your performance and what you're doing and whether you should stick around or not. So to me, it's like if I, you can, you know, still go back home, I guess, and like while you're paying for culinary school. But to me, it's like I don't want to mess up, you know, eventually if I do enough damage, eventually get let go. And it's like, well, what am I going to do for my my living situation? Yeah. You know? Yeah, that's uh, your life on the line, kind of. Essentially, yeah. yeah. And it's like to that, that's a lot, to me, a lot more dire 
and a lot more transformative than the previous, I guess, if that makes sense. No, that makes a lot of sense. Yeah. And and that's... I don't know how what, what else they could do. Yeah, that's not even the default of the culinary school. That's just the reality of the situation. Truly, yeah. So I want to, um, as we wind down here, I, I really want to use... Uh, the story, a story from when I first met you to kind of like get into this interesting line <laughs> of thinking. And that was uh, working at a dandelion pop-up mm-hmm. downtown. And you guys were, you had a, a, a menu full of things you were serving up, but one of them was um, these fried potatoes. And on top of the fried potatoes was supposed to be this raclette cheese. Yeah. So you guys brought down a raclette maker and you had it plugged <laughs> into the wall. And the idea was we're going to melt this cheese we're going to take it. We're going to put it on top of the potatoes. It took about 10 minutes. Yes, it did. Oh, my for God. For you guys to realize that was not going to work because the cheese was not melting fast enough. And everybody was ordering these potatoes because they looked phenomenal and they smelled <laughs> phenomenal. So everybody's ordering them. So you guys improvised on the fly and you realize, hey, what if we took this cheese and put it on the grill and melted it. Yeah. And that worked. And you were able to get through service. You would not have been able to do the service if you had just used the melter. But you were able to improvise and find a solution that worked and still gave people great food on the fly, even though it wasn't what you intended. How important is it in kitchen life to have that ability to improvise? And is that just something that comes naturally? Or did you have to learn it? I think... Uh a little bit of both of that you have to learn, and it comes slightly naturally. I think with kitchens, you always have to pivot. You never know what's going to happen. You never know what dietary constraint, allergy, food preference that somebody wants. So you always have to be able to accommodate that guest accordingly. You know, especially if they're vegan, that's always super fun. I don't say that in the ironic sense. I think it's actually really cool to uh, make everybody feel included so when they actually go out to enjoy a meal that they're also having the same thoughtful intentiveness of like somebody cooking your protein as they would be getting vegetables. Um, yeah, that moment was like slightly scary. Cause it was like, wow, this is not moving as fast as we need it to be. Um, and of course, you know, when you first open up, you're getting things set up. So people are getting their orders and you get starting what we like saying, like get, you know, stacked up on tickets and knowing each one of those has a potato on it. It's like, well, what can we do? And the first thing was like, why don't we just griddle this? Because it's just like, it's just going to go faster. We can already pre-slice, have somebody start pre-slicing it. And then each order, we can just throw it down. And as that happened, Timmy Maids comes running back up. And he's like, John, John, just throw it on the griddle. <laughs> and I turn around and I'm like putting my hands down to the griddle. I'm like, I'm doing it. I'm doing it. <laughs> and I texted him about that. And I was like, I like how we both had the same idea. And he came back like a homie to like, give some insight right, yeah. and that was so great and yeah i thought that was really really great um just to be to have that mentality it's like well if this is not working what's going to be the most efficient way i can get this done and pivot mm-hmm. you know because like i said there's no other choice but you have to do it you got to do it you know you can't not have cheese on that you know duck fat potatoes uh-huh. <laughs> yeah um so i think that's a very important thing is to be able to have that flexibility to be able to pivot and still put up high quality food i apologize to put you on the spot here but <laughs> what what is the either the craziest improvisation you've made in a kitchen or the one that you're most proud of <sighs> like you can look back and say i was in a total bind here but i like used a paper clip and <laughs> <laughs> macgyvered it yeah. ended up building this makeshift thing yeah oh man i can't even 
I don't even know. I mean, when you go through a, a long 10 years, there's always there's something. Yeah. Gosh. Um, I think it's always been super fun when, I don't know, I guess in my mind when somebody vegan shows up. Like, that's always super fun. It's like, well, what can they have? Because especially in a French restaurant, you're like, well, can't add butter to that. You know, I can't mount that with butter and can't use pork stock for that. Uh, so I think, I don't know, I think it's really those dishes that makes puts people on their toes and really have to think, or if somebody has a nightshade allergy or, you know, or allergic to something, especially in a dish, and it's like, well, how are you going to do this? If I had to describe a moment I had to pivot. In all, in all honesty, this has been a great answer so far, so don't feel like you need to stretch yourself to... I'm just trying to think, because there's so many different ways. I guess, like, pivoting to me is, like, knowing that, let's say, you have a couple appetizers, entree, walk, and I'm back. Like, you already know that you have their protein like a medium rare that's already sandbagged at rest, like, you know, at a couple minutes after you've been pulling it out of the oven. And then I guess it's kind of what we just call selling around. So it's like if you know that you already just dropped that steak, but you know the other steak that just came in on 32 is on backpack, so it's third course, and you just sent first course. And this other one that you've already just came in has a chicken and that matching on it, then you can therefore drop that steak that you're going to be selling for that previous table and then use that steak for that previous table and sell it towards that table that just came in so it's kind of just in your way sorry uh (laughs) orchestrating it and how it's going to be the most efficient but i guess what's going to be the less headache for you and those are risky maneuvers because you didn't know it's like hey chef they actually want to fire on second and third course Uh, just just send it you know and you're like now okay now i have a time frame that like i need to have this up at a certain point um yeah, I think too many to count. It's hard to say which pivot would be the best. Uh-huh. <laughs> People, if you ever go to a restaurant and feel like complaining about the service or that your food is taking too long or something, go back and listen to those last 20 seconds of that answer and just realize the amount of things that these people back in the kitchen are having to process in their minds all at once. Like, that was amazing. It sounded like a different language almost, <laughs> yeah. but that's just like... That's just everyday stuff. I, I find it fascinating, and it's it's so cool to hear that. Yeah. I mean, I think that's kind of what one thing that that Mertz really taught was uh, protein cookery. And it's like managing your temperatures, times, whether you're going sear to post-rest sear into oven. Are you going to be able to get it, like, right underneath so you can rest it up? Because it's going to continue when you pull it out of the oven. And it's just like how... Protein cookery, it's like, that's like that. It's like you're thinking about, that's already the oven, but that guy has two more minutes on its rest, then I'm going in the oven at 450, but then I'm realizing I'm opening up the door too many times, so it's dropping that temperature, so I know that chicken that I've had in there is, like, still going to take probably about two minutes longer, and it's, like, almost mentally exhausting by the time you get done with it. I'm exhausted, and I'm just sitting here, like, <laughs> you know? Yeah, it's, and you just have to do it for, like, what, six hours in a row? That's no big deal at all. Yeah. Well, longer than that. Yeah. I, I try not to think of the time, <laughs> you know? When you actually, yeah, I don't try to do that. <laughs> all right. We're uh, almost, almost out of time here, but there's two questions that I like to ask mm-hmm. almost all my guests just – I, I think it's fascinating. I think it's good for, for diners to know just for their purposes. What is one thing about working in kitchens that most diners don't understand that you wish they did? Oh, man, that's a load of, that's a really good question. Um, I like to ask it. Thank yeah. you. Yeah. For diners to understand that people are putting their all into what you're eating and hopefully that you can taste that. Um that the service industry is grueling. Like you don't do it for, I think to do it for fame or money is one of the dumbest things I've ever heard of. Uh, 
And honestly, you know, people put in their work, whether that's somebody staying super late at night after a crazy service to be able to make sure their accounts are ready for the next day so they know that the next day you're not going to be going into a bind or get caught on something that you only have a four count on. Uh, I just think that the amount of work that people actually put into work, whether that be the purveyor getting it uh, to you and then you actually prepping that item to you actually executing it, there's a lengthy amount of time to, uh, you know, what's the, the classic, thing, classic saying? It only took like five minutes to eat it. Mm-hmm. You know, all that time to go into something that's so, oh, what's the word I'm looking for? Just temporary, mm-hmm. you know? Uh, I'm sure I'll remember it on the drive home, <laughs> what I was going to say, but it's there's a lot of work for a short amount of time for somebody to eat it, you know? Mm-hmm. So I think a lot of people, they grind, they put their all into it, whether it causes them stress. I mean, most times we're catching family meal and, like, standing around or sitting on a milk crate trying to eat for 10 to 15 minutes just so you can go back into it, you know, long days, longer nights, uh, the strain that can have on – people with their relationships, missing holidays. You know, there's a lot of stuff that I think people don't really think about, mm-hmm. you know. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. That's a great answer. Thanks, man. Uh, and then well, let's get you out of here on a positive note. Yes, of course. We've probably touched on this at some point during the conversation, but just to put a nice bow on things, what's your favorite thing about working in the restaurant industry? I got to say that feeling of when somebody absolutely enjoys something that you made or – asking for them to, hey, could I talk to the chef? And then going out and then just rambling about their dish for 15 minutes while they kind of stare at you. And they sit there and just, that was just amazing. Thank you. And I think it's the thank you and somebody really appreciating it. And knowing the fact that you made that person happy uh, is no other feeling that I can possibly describe. That's awesome. And I know that Le Bouillon makes a lot of people happy. So I I hope that a lot of people express that because you guys deserve it. You put in a lot of hard work and it, it shows in the food. I thank can you. personally testify to that. <laughs> yeah. uh, John, thank you so much for joining me today. This has truly been a real pleasure. Thank you for having me. I appreciate that you took the time out of your day to, you know, come talk to me. Ooh, can I do a shout out? Do a shout out. Let's S- go. Sweet. I'm going to say shout out to Mac Attack, a.k.a. McKenzie. I'm going to say shout out to uh, Josh, a.k.a. Ducky, a.k.a. Twin. Shout out to Amanda Panda. Shout out to Natalie Ones. Uh, shout out to Tony. Shout out to Kara. Shout out to Sam. Keep your head up. Uh, and everybody else that is really important and cool and people that I've worked with and so much and so forth. Shout out. Cheers. Beautiful. I love it. All right. And shout out to Omaha. As always, thanks for eating with us. A Huda Media Production.